Hi, I'm Josh. I'm Ken. And I'm TJ. Welcome to Serious Film People, the podcast wherein we analyze a series of films and endeavor to understand the reasons for why they were nominated for Best Picture at the Academy Awards. And this is our series on the 1948 films nominated for Best Picture at the 21st Academy Awards held in 1949. This week, we're talking about Anatoly Litvak's The Snake Pit, starring Olivia de Havilland as a woman struggling to recover from an extreme nervous breakdown in a New York State mental institution. I guess we'll start as we always do. Josh, had you seen this film before? Uh, I had not heard of this film before. <laughs> um, so no, I had not seen it. I think I well, I just told you guys I finished like an hour ago. So coming in fresh with my take on The Snake Pit. Yes. <laughs> TJ, how about you? I had heard of it. Uh, I, could, I don't think I could have told you what it was about until I looked it up last week. But I had heard the title and that it was associated with kind of an older, a, a woman in distress sort of movie. But no, I had not seen it before. Can I, I take it you probably have a relationship with Olivia de Havilland's movies that I do not have. I do. Her, I know her name because she died recently, like in the last couple of years, at the age of 104. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, she I died. I have not seen any of her movies. Sorry, that sounds like I'm laughing at her dying. I did not intend for that, but like 104 is impressive. And she was That's still really like, impressive. wasn't she at the Oscars when she was like 102 or something? Like, uh, Not quite. Probably. Not not that quite. Not that old, I don't think. I think she was in her 90s the last time she made an appearance. Cause I think like late 90s. I mean, it was... She was still really with it. It was impressive. She had uh, she had moved she had moved to to Paris. I don't know how long ago, but she was living in Europe. Um, but yeah, we're talking about an actress who was uh, born in 1916. She got her start in the mid 30s. I mean, she was acting acting opposite Errol Flynn in Captain Blood in 1935, and she lived long enough to see the covid pandemic so she did yes, yes we're, we're talking about a, there's a there's a huge gap she's probably the last major star of the golden era era you, of hollywood you know the movie 1917 she was alive for the real thing right correct. right yeah. yes. that's correct yes um yes i i'm familiar with olivia de Havilland's films that said josh i'm actually with you on this i when we first discussed uh, doing 1948, The Snake Pit was the one film that I, my mind just couldn't wrap itself around. I don't, I wasn't sure if I'd ever heard of it. I certainly could not tell you what it was about. So this uh, was also a first viewing for me as well. But had you seen Olivia de Havilland movies before this one? Oh I yes, oh oh yeah. I've seen I've seen many de Havilland movies. Sure, there were, if you've ever seen Gone with the Wind, of course, her most famous role is arguably uh, Melanie from. Gone with the Wind. She's the the supporting. I haven't set aside five hours yet for Gone with the Wind. That's still a blind spot. <laughs> wow. Yeah. She's. That, I was going to say that's a that's a big film. Uh, a big film to still have on your watch list. Oh, sorry. I'll 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 turn in my serious film person card <laughs> no, at the end no. of the episode. I apologize. We'll, we'll get we'll get to it. She's also made Marion in the Adventures of Robin Hood. Uh, the that's 30, right. Thirty was it thirty seven thirty eight version somewhere in there. The Errol Flynn. Correct. Yep. And she, I prefer the Foxy version of Robin Hood from the 1970s that Disney put out. That's my preferred Robin I'm, Hood version. I'm partial to Men in Tights with Carrie Elwes. <laughs> Here you go. I, I I like all three of those. So I'm perfectly. In fact, I own all three of those. I think copies. And let's not forget the Costner, Morgan Freeman, and Alan Rickman one. Is anybody riding for the Ridley Scott? Russell Crowe, Robin Hood from like 2010. I, I'm, not sure, I, I'm not sure I'm Ridley gonna, Scott even likes that movie. I was going to say, I'm going <laughs> to skip on, I'm going to, I've seen it, but I think I'll leave that one off of my, uh, my Robin Hood list. Fun fact, that's the one movie I've, I've ever pirated. It was, I didn't do it. It was given to me because I won't tell you who it was, but it was someone we went to high school with. I'll tell you off air. Um, I did a video project for them and transferred something on a file. And as a thank you, this, he, we went to boy school. Uh, just dropped a a uh, illegal download of Ridley Scott's Robin Hood on my drive as a thank you. Wow. Oh, yeah. Wait, you did, you did a video project for him? Was that above board or was that uh, surreptitious? Um, could you expand on your question? What was the video project? Were you doing him? Were well, you but doing, if I, was if it I, a school if, assignment that you were doing for oh, him? Oh, no, no, no. Was no, he no, paying was, you for it, your time? It, uh, it was a thank you for my for my time and talents, um, uh. which my time and talents are pretty much just worth a copied file of ridley scott's of a middling yeah <laughs> it, it was a very appropriate liked. payment you know 
I wasn't getting like a 4K of the social network. It was yeah. so Olivia De Havilland, and Errol Flynn, and Robin Hood. That's where we. That's where this started. Continue, Ken. Sorry, I interrupted you. No, no, you're you're fine. Uh, I mean, she's she was a well known actress starting uh, by the time she had gone with the wind in 1939. She was already very well known. Um, so we're talking about a well established actress. So by the time by the time this film comes around, she's already won at least one of her two Oscars. I have to double check. I can't remember. Uh, when, no, I think she's got, I take that back. She wins the following year for the heiress. So, um, yeah, she's already got one Oscar. She's got a nomination for the snake pit, um, which we'll talk about the Academy Awards nominations that uh, were awarded, uh, for this film a little later, but, uh, she did get a nomination for this film and, um, yeah, she's a two time Oscar, Oscar winner for best actress. Her her sister, Joan Fontaine, is also a famous Oscar-winning actress of the period. Um, their their relationship is famously uh, frosty at best. And by frosty at best, uh, they I my understanding is they stopped talking sometime in like the sep- the 1970s. Both lived well into their 90s. When, when she was 70 years old. I was going to say both lived and both lived a long time after they stopped talking and um, they never spoke again. Like they... They went the rest of their lives without speaking. So they really didn't like each other. Um, yeah. So th- she's she's not That's one of impressive. my favorite. She's not one of my favorite actresses from the golden era, but she's um, she pops up in quite a number of uh, well-made films, kind of smaller films, actually, besides uh, Gone with the Wind, obviously, and Robin Hood. Um, she's She's got some, some gems in there, we'll say. What are some gems? Uh, well, the heiress is an interesting one. It's a period piece film. Um, again, I would I would not say any of them are my favorites, but uh, Air, Airport seventy seven. <laughs> Lest we forget Airport seventy seven. Was she in Airport seventy seven? Uh, yeah, that's a late. That's I can't. Even, I couldn't remember if she's in that. I know she's oh, yeah. in Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte with uh, Joan uh, Joan Crawford and Betty Davis. Um. Yeah, she she usually tends to to play kind of uh, stiff upper lipped patrician type characters, particularly later on. Her uh, her gooey gooey oh too sweet Melanie performance in Gone with the Wind is um, is an early kind of ingenue role, and later on she's her characters tend to be rather strong willed, uh, independent, and sometimes slightly uh slightly villainous we'll say is the older she got do you think she's playing against type here by playing a vulnerable uh not in control uh woman on the brink no i think this actually fits pretty well into where she's at at this point in her career um she's she i think yeah i think this works pretty well she's only she's fairly not that old actually she's in her 30s i guess at this point um She's still generally the more empathetic leading lady in these films, I think, at this point. So uh, it's not surprising that she's she was the one they chose for this performance. Not the first choice, though, I read. No, no. Um, I can't remember who the other one was, but I do know she wasn't the initial. Jean Tierney. There Jean you go. Jean Tierney was supposed to play Virginia, but was replaced because Tierney became pregnant. And so oh. the role went to Olivia de Havilland. See, there you go. That that teaches you a lesson. Don't don't go starting a family in uh, in studio era Hollywood. It just, uh, it's just going to lose your parts. How about you start the movie? What is this movie? The Snake Pit. So again, you and I both, I think, just admitted we never we weren't familiar with this at all, and TJ couldn't even tell you before uh, we we decided to watch these uh, what it was about. So I think all three of us, it's safe to say, learned of of this movie's uh, plot fairly recently um as i said at the top of the uh, top of the podcast she's playing a woman who is recently had a nervous breakdown um fairly recently when we first when we first uh, encounter her um we learned through flashback and exposition um she's not she's she's a very sick woman and they've stuck her into a mental institution so she's, she's hearing voices Yes, that's the, fact, open, the, oh. the opening scene is her sitting on a park bench, and we hear her. We hear the voice in her head. It's Correct. a very disorienting opening scene. Yes, it is because you're not sure. It, it's actually really well done, I thought, because in the opening sequence, 
it does throw you off. You're not sure if there's actually somebody just off camera who is in fact talking with her and she just seems to be kind of distracted. And yeah, not it's, only it's a an- tight close up. Yes. Yeah. Well, because she's, yeah. she's not only answering the questions that she believes is being asked of her by the person who's not present, but also internalizing her thoughts. So we're hearing her internal thoughts as well as her verbalized responses to questions she believes is, are being asked of her. It's a very off-putting opening sequence. And I think actually well done. I mean, this is 1948, and it's a really interesting choice to start the film off this way. Yeah, it gets her right in there. There's no, like, what... I mean, there's flashbacks later, but there's not a lot of what she was like before. Um, and it's it, it's a pretty effective hook. Um, I, this did win an Oscar for sound recording. Correct. Um, yep. Which I think had, probably had a lot to do with that, as well as some of the things we'll talk about later with, like, some of the impressionistic percussiony things that happen in her head but well also it's it's clear that she she loses time a lot like she doesn't know how much time is passing like Mm -hmm. she says she wakes up and then suddenly it's time to go to bed uh uh when she's first institutionalized it's in may and she thinks it's november so uh the loss of time is uh, a common thing with her so the fact that we're just like plopped into this mental institution with her sitting on a park bench uh with you know, kind of in media res basically and just hearing voices that she's hearing uh, i think it's pretty effective because she doesn't really know how long she's been there or how she got there so it's kind of putting the audience in her mindset by just plopping her in plopping there in her in there with her so she's sitting there on the uh, on the bench and it goes on for a good a good minute i think of the movie is just her sitting there and you quickly re- realize not i shouldn't say quickly but within probably 20 years 30 seconds or so you realize that there's nobody else immediately there with her um, because she kind of looks around and the camera does eventually pan a little bit and it's revealed that she's sitting all by herself on this bench until we do suddenly get the the intrusion of another voice uh, that she seems startled by almost as if she didn't realize that someone was actually there or someone was just off to her right Um, that's the actress Celeste Holm playing, I think her character's mm-hmm. name is Grace. Grace, yeah. And yeah. she's the one who actually introduces us to our setting. Um, because she seems to be uh, certainly on the back end of her stay at the institution. In fact, she actually, I think, suggests before she disappears. She's only in the first few minutes. But it seems that she's going to be moving on to Ward 1, which we, we learned from her is the top ward. That's the last ward you're in, preferably before you're uh, discharged. Transition home. Ward. Yes. Yeah. And so Grace is, Grace is pretty close to being there, um, so much so that she seems to be looking out for Virginia. That's, uh, that's the, the character name for um, Olivia de Havilland's role. And um, – yeah, so much so that she's trying to escort Virginia back into the institution when the bell's going off. She's explaining what the bell's for and trying to keep her in line, not only literally in the lineup of women back in, um, but keeping her within the rules. Because it appears that if you go outside the rules, which we don't know just yet, but if you go outside the rules, uh, the nurses can be either really nice and really understanding or they can all be like Nurse Ratchet. I think it's mostly Nurse Ratchet in this movie, honestly. Like, that was an observation I had, is, like, the nurses are all pretty horrible on balance. And uh, I read a bit of the trivia section on Amazon Prime where I was watching this, is that, allegedly, I didn't look this up myself, but allegedly, uh, censors were worried that this movie was too harsh to nurses, such that it would discourage women from entering the profession. And they almost they almost wanted to, like, recut the movie to make the nurses not seem so bad. Disclaimer, not all these nurses are bitches in real life. <laughs> in in their defense, I feel like, it, obviously, we'll, I, we'll talk about it in a little bit. There's one nurse in particular, Nurse Davis, um, who is particularly bad. And she, we kind of, Virginia actually figures out why she has uh, a bone to pick with Virginia. Um, but all of the yeah. nurses, all of the nurses, I'm not sure so much that they're all Nurse Ratchet-like, but... It does certainly speak to the fact that they are all overworked and they seem to be maybe otherwise distracted by other priorities, not only from, not only from, from orders coming down from above, but they're having to deal with all of these patients. And, and, and I think as well, like, you know, Nurse Ratchet stands in, as we talked about for a lot of things, you know, the machine, the fear of matriarchy, all of those things. But when you have a, staff of nurse ratchets what becomes indicted more is the institution and the lack of knowledge behind 
that institution. You know, one of the things that struck me watching this was how much of their quote unquote care was like, just throw all these crazy women like in a room and let them do whatever kind of thing. Um, And like almost like, you know, unaccompanied minors sort of thing. And uh, I'm I'm watching this and what it it's, 15 years before, 20 years before, but it's reminded me a lot of Titicut Follies and a lot of the things that you would later see. And that was Frederick Wiseman's documentary um, filmed inside mental institutions. That's a pretty mm. harrowing, a pretty harrowing movie. And Shock Corridor is a similar, it's a, it's a fiction film. It's kind of a horror movie by Sam Fuller um, that has to do with um, uh, electroshock therapy and kind of the horrors uh, that that, comes from and engenders so which uh, i'm not not to say i don't i don't think that this film necessarily tackles all of those points as well as those other films you just mentioned however um it is of it is of note this is the first time that a lot of audiences were exposed to any of this including um at what at the time was still kind of in its early use but shock shock therapy does appear in the film and um while they don't it's not like the infamous scene in Chinatown where we actually see, nest. or excuse me, not Chinatown cuckoo's nest. Yes. I'm gonna shock your brain, Mister. <laughs> yes. um, you know what happens to nosy kitties? They get shocked. I apologize. I've got I've got Jack Nicholson titles running through my head. Um, but in, in yeah, cuckoo's nest. Unlike that film, which has a rather memorable scene. Uh, where he's receiving shock therapy, this film is a little more um, careful. They they do the cutaway, it which cuts we see, away. which it doesn't we, actually show her receiving it. It shows the machine itself. Doesn't show her, which we've seen quite a bit from films in 1948. They are um, we talked about John, when we talked about Johnny Belinda. They are cutting away from the most graphic or the most horrifying aspects of whatever it is they're wanting to discuss or depict. But I think the point you were making is that this is the first movie to really show inside a mental institution in any meaningful way, and. Uh, maybe show the patients with uh, complexity and more respect that it less dismissive of the patients in mental institutions than any previous depiction, I would say is, is my understanding of it. And raise away and raising for raising awareness. And the characters too seem to have a, a number of them seem to have an awareness of the way in which that functions as well. I think it's grace says at one point, like they won't even let a girl light her own cigarette in here, which is just a way of kind of reminding us that we're not adults quote unquote, uh, that's a really bad paraphrase of the line, but uh, it gives them some agency in their perspective there of knowing the way that they're being oppressed. Right. And I, I don't want to, I'll, we'll talk about this more later, I'm sure. But like, it's, it's hard. We, we've already discussed One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest on this podcast before. And I realize that's 28 years later, 27 years later than this, but um it's it's hard to not see this in the shadow of that. Gra- again, granted, the you know Cuckoo's Nest came later, but I saw Cuckoo's Nest long before I ever saw this. So like, you know, this is I guess the first version, so it gets it gets credit for being first. But it's um, I, I guess in twenty twenty three, it's hard to take this as seriously as people might have taken it in forty eight, which is the exact same thing we said about Johnny Belinda to an extent. Yeah, it's still got there's. I don't want to say I don't want to say simple. Maybe that's the wrong word, but it. it it is certainly, I think, a more surface level view, and it's it's not it's not really tackling too many of the complexities. Even though, uh, to its credit, it is showing the the variance of patients in these institutions. It's it's not us fra- or, or trying to hide the fact that there are problems with the institutions, which, to its credit, uh, actually did result in a number of states actually reviewing their own internal um, institution um, yeah, systems and processes. Yeah. And yes, mm-hmm. new legislation was passed across the country and more people were aware of it. So uh, aware of the issues that is um, facing patients in these institutions. I, yeah. I think two things for me that kind of straddle the balance between, I don't want to say like how well it's aged or not, but something that's extremely perfect, uh, effective to me is her performance, Olivia de Havilland's performance, I, I think she is really, really good in this film. And I think a lot of her acting, you know, it, it's easiest for us to say now, like to use the kind of realistic qualifier in terms of acting, which doesn't hold up outside of any, like people thought James Dean was realistic. Now it looks kind of silly. You know, it doesn't really hold up outside of the time in which you're watching. But there's certain places she goes that I 
it still like got under my skin and still kind of gave me chills um in terms of i don't know how to put it other than like the the, the panic and the torment and the way she's trying to figure out desperately where she is and what's going on and i think a lot of that mm-hmm. holds holds up really well on the flip side um a lot of the conversation she has with the doctor that falls into what psycho would do in like the last 10 minutes of psycho which is like yeah but maybe a character who just kind of explains this through psycho babble and he basically is like a reader's guide to freudian archetype jargon yeah <laughs> yes um, yeah yeah and I, so i think i think those two things part of the struggle for me with this film is those two things work against one another where her performance gives a real look at like the individual and in particular sufferings of an individual, but then his framing of it, his explanation of it, then generalizes it to kind of psychobabble. Now, granted, Freudian explanations of things in literature, but in popular culture were very popular in the United States post-World War II. Um, So that's probably why a lot of that is there, but it does seem to be both, it's under the, the magnifying glass, but then... Let's go back to like a glossary of terms, if that makes sense. Well, I I, I kind of laughed at one point where she's uh, Virginia is talking to Doctor Kick in his office, and there's just like a random portrait of Sigmund Freud just like hanging <laughs> on his wall, and like with nothing else around, it's just a close up portrait of, of Freud just hanging there, um, which I thought was funny. And I, I guess to your point, TJ, like he is a, a mouthpiece to like explain what's going on with her in a way that might have seemed novel in 1948 mm-hmm. uh but mm-hmm. it, i don't know like watching this now you're like okay she has uh some uh, she had a nervous breakdown probably due to some kind of trauma in her past is my guess as a modern audience member watching this now and like that's like the big reveal an hour and 20 minutes mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. oh she had childhood trauma da, 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 you know and like I don't know. That's I. I kind of knew immediately where it was going, and not even just because I've not even just childhood trauma. It, it's kind of <laughs> it's kind of textbook to the point that it's eye rolling when the reveal and suddenly it's he's really eye rolling. Yes, like he actually. So she has a doll that her father won for her at like a state fair game thing, and like as a kid she like beat the doll and broke it and the doctor literally says at one point uh the doll was a symbol for your father blah, blah, blah. i'm like okay yeah and i really really rolled my eyes real hard at that point yes the it, it's and then you married gordon because like your father <laughs> he ran the family and then they yes. cut to him being like sit down at the dinner table <laughs> <laughs> virginia <laughs> it the, the uncomfortable part about that is dr kick is seemingly the only professional in the institution who is actually attempting to do the right thing, so to speak, for these patients. He's actually giving uh, all effort he can. At least he's focusing a lot on Virginia. He's using her almost as a test case, I think, for kind of a a patient-specific long-term strategy or game plan for treating the patient. He is not in any rush to get her discharged. We actually have a scene where he's in I think the the cafeteria or the, he's in a lunchroom um, with a bunch of other board members who are all talking about the fact that they've got far too many patients than they had intended beds for and the idea that, oh, well, she, she might be ready for discharge. Let's just uh, send her for, before the review committee and try and get her – or the staff as they refer to themselves – um, to get her, to, and she might be ready to discharge back to her husband and send her back off to Illinois or wherever it is they're going to go. And he's the only one who seems to be saying, "No, no, she's not ready, and we can't be we can't be treating these patients as if they're just numbers." Which, again, that's where the film I think does a does something really uh, noble. And for the time period, 1940, 1948, it's doing something that has an effect, a real world effect, so audiences can can you know, learn about what's going on with these institutions and the problems being uh, faced in them. That said, Dr. Kick, uh, his his kind of resolving Virginia's issues and trying to help her recover is such a simplified and kind of corny. In, for, for 2022 or 2023, it's, it's really, really corny. He kind of reminded me of uh, Lou Ayers from Johnny Belinda. Yes, yes, he did. Just in the role that he fulfilled kind of as, you know, yes. um, sympathetic 
member of kind of the, I don't know, the hierarchy or the authority or medical community. Yeah. 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 For me, this film is best when it's following Virginia and when it's amongst the patients, because Mm. Uh, the the performances I, they 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 run the gamut, but all of the all of the actors. It should be said first of all, they all went through a rather rigorous um, research period before the film was filmed. Especially Livy de Havilland. Correct. As well, the story she goes. Yeah, she went above and beyond. So the the director, um, in fact, insisted everybody uh, do some training and learn about these institutions. De Havilland, not surprisingly, being the lead actress, um, she went. A, bit beyond it she spent a lot of time at various institutions um, she bought her she, own doll she smashed it on the table <laughs> she, it was no it was her sisters let's be let's be fair she was yeah, no kidding her own stuff. and then they never actually, talked again yeah. <laughs> it was just a rag it was just a rag folded into the shape of a doll actually <laughs> ah. um but she she actually when when given permission she'd sit in on sessions with patients um she did up she actually viewed shock treatment therapies which had to have been eye-opening for uh, a, an actress coming from los angeles um in the 40s to be witness to something that probably wasn't being talked about or well public wasn't well educated on this subject just yet um it was kind of probably something that people were just becoming aware of and she actually uh there's a scene late in the film where she is uh attending a a, a like a dance it's like a it's like an institution dance with where all of the mm. both the female and male patients of i'm not sure if it's multiple wards or just ward 33 which is where she's at at the time but there's some kind of uh dance she actually attended a couple of those um because apparently uh she got into it with a um a critic who questioned the reality of having a dance at an institution and she wrote a letter she responded to the uh, the critic having to explain that, yes, they did have these uh, kinds of events in the institution, kind of to, I guess, somewhat normalize life for the patients as best as possible, and that it actually did some good. Um, so the she best, actually... Well, I said the best character in the whole movie is credited just as Dancing Woman, um, played by Jan, something or another, who really cuts a rug on that forbidden rug partway through. Oh, my God. Yes. Oh, my goodness. That's... Oh, yeah. I think Best that's part of the movie. That's uh, it's a, it's about middleway through the film. She's in. I think that's when she's in Ward Twelve. But there's a there's a rug in the middle of the room, and all of the that women you do not walk on. Right, they're walking. They're walking in a circle around the rug, and she just suddenly Virginia that is suddenly decides to run over to the rug and sit on it, and one of the other patients kind of <laughs> snitches on her, and a nurse comes running over, and I swear I started laughing at the ridiculousness of the nurse. Mm-hmm. yelling at her to get off the rug because it's mm-hmm. a because it's a brand new rug and word 12 doesn't apparently get new things that often and so they want to keep it as pristine and clean as possible for as long as they can so the the patients aren't allowed to walk on the rug in the middle of this common room and suddenly one of the patients <laughs> follows virginia out onto the rug and starts dancing on a beam oh she just breaks it down yeah and virginia is demanding that the nurse no let her go she's what harm is it doing and God love her. That she's she's doing a really good job, I think, uh, dancing. But here we have the nurses again. It's cutting. According in. to according to Mary Jane Ward's Wikipedia page, Mary Jane Ward, who wrote the autobiographical novel upon which this movie is based, what a bad last uh, name to have, given what happened to her. I was I was just thinking that. Yeah, Mary Jane Ward. It's tough tough beat for her. Um, according to her Wikipedia page, this scene is something close to what happened but um apparently it was more uh, racial in nature hmm. uh in in the book the nurse is both authoritarian and racist who will not let a black patient wear a hat that virginia has offered her and um this rug scene is like i guess trying to approximate that and it's wow but totally just extracted the racial component from it yeah there's no black people in this movie that's for sure no um intersectionality i guess didn't exist in the 1940s this is but, a um, white snake pit <laughs> yes yes <laughs> um that is like the one time that this like approaches cuckoo's nest territory where it's like the person the institution kind of like rails against the authoritarian nature of of their of their care but that don't really go anywhere beyond her just like sitting as a mm-hmm. protest sitting on the rug well she mm-hmm. she pushes back a few times because it 
usually against Nurse Davis. As I mentioned earlier, there's one nurse in particular um, when she's in uh, – I can't remember which – I can't remember now which ward she's ward, in. There's three. Ward one. Uh, is it? I don't know if she's – well, she's in ward one later. She's but in she's, ward one for sure. And she's in – Nurse Davis Nurse Davis throws her out of ward one. That's Yeah, that comes, that comes later. But she first encounters – she first encounters Nurse Davis during her shock treatment because right. at some point um, the idea is when we first meet Virginia, she she's kind of lost the last five months. She hasn't really, as the doctor says, hasn't really been able to be in contact with anyone. Um, she doesn't she doesn't really recognize the doctor when she when we first meet Doctor Kick and he approaches her. She doesn't seem to recognize him. She just recognizes his voice. She doesn't recognize her husband uh, Robert, who is standing right there next to the doctor. Uh, we don't know that that's who he is initially, but um, when the doctor, which is an ineffective like withholding of information, because I was as I was watching, there's a minute where you're like, are they are they messing with her? Right. You know. Yeah. Right. And. And so she's lost the last five months, so he prescribes shock treatment as a way to, quote, get in contact with her or make contact with her. And after – I think I think there's four attempts. It's suggested that there are four attempts, and she reaches out to him one evening when he's doing rounds, I guess, at, at bed check or something. And she reaches out to him and starts actually conversing with him, and she, he decides to take her off the shock treatment. And lo and behold, the next day, the nurses escort her to the shock treatment room, and it's only because Dr. Kick happens to be there to perform it does he go, oh, well, did you check her charts? She's not – I took her off this. And Nurse Davis's response is to push back at him, suggesting that, oh, well, we're so distracted and busy. There are so many patients defending why they almost accidentally gave this woman extra shock treatment when she apparently didn't need it. And – it's a disgusting moment in the film because the nurse has clearly no interest or concern for the patient. Um, and she's kind of offended that the doctor would kind of call her out. And, uh, you know, for- and with, with a lot of things we talk about in terms of like the content of the film and the things that like stuck up and disturbed us, I think something that works really well in the film too, is like the, the, the visualization of, kind of what her paranoia or her discombobulation is. So a lot of the times where there'll be dissolves or layover fades or the even the cutting on sound to the waves crashing, um, that kind of far away um, vision of the quote unquote snake pit, the titular snake pit, which I got to say a major pet peeve of mine. And I rolled my eyes when this happened, but I hate when people in movies dramatically state the title of the movie. And she's like, Oh, I love it. It was like, <laughs> I, I it love it. Like I was thrown into it. a pit. Yes. Like a snake pit. And I'm like, oh, f- <laughs> like uh, to be clear, stand that. I'm going to take his face off. off. At least that is insane. You know, but like, <laughs> can you imagine? Oh God. Can't stand that. To be clear, uh, for anybody listening, there there are no snakes, and the pit that is being referenced uh, in the title is actually only, I think we learn, is only specifically Ward 33. It's the last space she's in. It doesn't, it's not actually, I thought, I thought for sure we'd get information suggesting that it's the reference to all of the institution. Well, it's the ward that's the, the crazy of the crazies that really just kind of mull about, uh, to use tj's term you know unsupervised children just kind of you know bouncing off walls and just kind of left their own devices basically the uh the incurables possibly it's a, yeah. it's, a, it's an incredibly just dis- it's it's actually still even for 2023 a little disturbing because you have all of these women just kind of randomly wandering about this large space which seems to be it's first of all much darker it seems to be brick just brick walls um it's not like downstairs in the other wards where it's more of a hospital setting. This seems more like a warehouse setting. It's a well, large room, which is here. which goes to the point early on where she thinks she's in prison, right? Um, yeah, because th- th- there's no medical care going on there. It's simply containment. It's simply Correct. confinement. You know, and it's and it's removing it's removing those who are abnormal. That's in quotes, air quotes um, for those of you not viewing, which is all of you um, <laughs> fr- from from the quotes normal society because of what. Uh, discomfort they might create or what they might reflect back to them. But what I think is important about the snake pit metaphor, not to lean on a forced metaphor too hard, is she she talks about, you know, they used to treat 
um, unwell people by you'd throw them into a pit of snakes because it's something that would terrify a sane person. And so it's something that's so terrifying that an unsane, insane person would like snap back to it, which is some really strange fucking medieval medicine there. But, um, you know, you can sort of read her there as is she a quotes normal woman who was on the verge of a nervous breakdown wink to Almodovar and thus thrown into this that she's not actually sick she's just kind of had a minute versus people who actually could not function as well on the outside and that's putting her in putting her in the metaphorical snake pit where the craziest of the crazies are makes her could potentially make her realize oh i'm not like these people yeah i don't belong here but then what you but then what you see especially with the way she like lies about they, they lie to her about her husband being there and whatnot is like what happens when you throw a person in a snake pit? They get defensive. They act aggressive. Um, you know, the snakes, in a sense, really are the nurses, as we've hit on already. And it's a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy that you act crazy in a place where you were placed when you were crazy because it's a crazy environment. Yeah. You mentioned the nurses again. And Ken, you were making a purse about you were making a point about Nurse Davis that kind of like went to the ECT of it all. But I want to talk more about Nurse Davis, which is that. It's kind of revealed towards the end why Nurse Davis is so particularly harsh to Virginia, and it's because Nurse Davis apparently has the hots for Dr. Kick, and Dr. Kick is giving Virginia a lot of attention, which I think there's some <laughs> misogyny to pull apart from this movie, I think. Uh, like, like uh, all of the women I, well, are... I don't understand, Josh. I didn't see it when I watched. Can you explain that? <laughs> well, okay. First of all, all of the women in the movie are either crazy or um, authoritarian nurses who apparently She's are authoritarian because they're jealous. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah, exactly. They're they're jealous bitches, uh, to use a modern term, I guess. Um, so it's tough. It's a tough beat for uh, our lady friends in this movie. Um, it's uh, a lot of this movie is just bitches be crazy and bitches be jealous. Pretty much. The only um, the only aspect to the nurse the nurse Davis storyline that I appreciated was the the choice to have Virginia be the one to point out that's the reason, and she hits it. She's correct. So it's it's a bit of insight on Virginia's part. She's not better, but she's or she's not well. I should say. But it does suggest that there has been improvement, um, which makes it all the more frustrating when obviously uh, soon, soon thereafter, because of her her pointing that out directly to Nurse Davis, um, Nurse Davis essentially uh, finds a good reason to send her off to Word 33. She does have a bit of a breakdown, but it's because she's cornered. Um, and, f- and it's also worth mentioning – it's also worth mentioning that Virginia's whole – Nervous breakdown as a result of her mother being withholding. So again, it's a woman's fault that Virginia's like this. And her mother was withholding, and then her father could have saved Virginia by being more attentive, but like was convinced by Virginia's mean old mom to also be withholding. She gets off Thus, on being withholding. Yeah, by the exactly, way, when we so. when we say withholding, we we mean that the, the we mean that the, the background I already gave you a kiss goodnight, Virginia. You don't need yeah. another one. Yes. Go to sleep now. Correct. She's the <laughs> you needy little girl. Yes. Virginia's background or her memories are that her mother wouldn't give her another kiss goodnight um, when she was little. And also her dad's betrayal is that he agrees with her her mother in the sense that she should go and get her doll back because the there's a moment where in the flashback She's traded her doll for a, another doll. She traded a baby doll with for another neighbor. doll. Yeah. Or traded her doll for a baby doll for, with her neighbor. And yeah. yes, and her mother is irate about it, insists she go get the doll back. And she's sure, she's absolutely sure that her father will be on her side. And he's not. And that's it. Per- that's what that's the betrayal. Well, but perhaps perhaps to her point that these seem to be rather benign um impetuses for madness. It could precisely be to the point that, like, she's not, doesn't need to go into the hospital. She just kind of needs a break and needs a minute, you know? And maybe just needs to talk to somebody about stuff. Yeah. Is there a scene where uh, Dr. Kick, like, gives her, like, a truth serum situation? He, like, hypnotizes her and keeps (laughs) injecting something into her arm as she discusses her 
her the death of her fiance gordon i'll be honest i had a question oh. about that scene because i'm not sure what he's injecting her with but yes it seems to be as as once he's injected hydroxychloroquine she is she is suddenly uh she's suddenly more readily able to uh lucid yeah to to kind of dig into her past her memories and begin addressing it. that's the first time we learn about gordon as you mentioned earlier the fact that she apparently before being married to robert had a fiance who was kind of a dick, um, based on the flashback, very controlling. And TJ, what was the letterboxed review that you read to us off mic before we started recording? Oh, it was when you confuse your daddy for your zaddy. <laughs> That's yes. It's not far off. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, she she was denied her father's love, and so she. There's like a very Oedipal like replacement theory that Dr. Kick is pref- that the movie also endorses Dr. Kick's theory that she's like using Gordon. She can't accept a, Gordon's love because she couldn't accept complex, her father's love. Josh. Electric complex, excuse me. Yeah, sorry. Sorry for getting my uh, Freud terms wrong. Um, and then same thing with Robert. She could not accept Robert's love because she couldn't accept her father's love. Blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. So, you know. Yeah. Because of her mom, she was messed up for the rest of her life is mm-hmm. the, the end game here. But yeah. Continue about Gordon. Sorry. No, no, that's it's just the that's that's where we first learn um, the you're, the scene you're referring to where he seems to be injecting her with something. That is the first real breakthrough moment we get in any kind of serious backstory to what seems to be troubling her, um, or what has been troubling her, or what caused her to have the nervous breakdown, and that is the fact that her fiance was um, killed in a car accident. Um. The same night that she actually was supposed, she she had made plans or a date with Robert, um, because mm. she was living in Chicago at the time. She she and Robert happened to encounter one another at a magazine where she was submitting um, an article of some kind or trying to submit something. Um, at the time, she's, she's a writer. She appears she's a writer because this 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 based on a book by Mary Jane Ward, Ward right. who was a writer, and so the character uh, Virginia in this book in this movie rather is also a writer, and she writes for a magazine. Trying to, and she is uh, seemingly. Not, I'm not sure he's actually her fiance yet, but there's a reference when they're in the car together um, about them becoming engaged. And no, he was asking her. He was basically saying, "Like my friends get married, we should also get married the same weekend or something like right. that." Right? Yeah, it's a the, it's the, a the very casualness of marriage proposals yes. in 1948 is pretty baffling. Yes, <laughs> like, well, no, it's when when Robert proposes, he's like, "Let's get married this weekend." It's I'm like, <laughs> Jesus Christ, Robert. <laughs> Yeah, it's well, not. I was gonna say, well, yeah, you've, your got, role, you've got Gordon who seems to be just casually <laughs> mentioning, and this is not unusual for films at the time. But yeah, Gordon's mentioning it passing in the car, and then yes, Robert is mentioning getting married soon after they've met. Um, then they go a year without encountering one another. She pops back up in New York City where Robert is. She and Robert get married very quickly, and within like five days of getting married, she has the nervous breakdown that puts her in the institution. And we learn that the reason for her breakdown is really because the last time she saw Robert, she had fled from him to go meet Gordon and feeling guilty, feeling it caused her to become kind of uh, feeling a little antsy, a little off that evening. He meant starts talking about marriage and she has a freak out and insists that he take her back home. They get an accident on the way home and he's killed in the car accident. So on top of the, the Electra complex that she seems to have regarding her father, she's also feeling guilty and kind of pushing, kind of hiding this in the back of her head, the fact that she feels guilty about Gordon's death. The fact that he was driving well, her, her, her home. Father, her father also died prematurely. And like when she was seven years old and mad at him for being withholding, she like wished him dead. Hence she destroyed the doll that he got her, which as the psychiatrist says, is a replacement for him. And so she feels guilty that he died because she had like kind of like childishly wished him dead and then gordon dying in her mind on account of her once again in the electric complex of it all worsened her uh, blossoming madness uh ken i want to ask you what did you think of this movie i liked i'll be honest i was surprised with how much i liked it um it's it's again it's it's a there are plenty of problems with the film plenty of flaws we'll say not problems but flaws with the film it's it's not a great film um, by any means, but uh, I think on the strength of De Havilland's performance and a few of the other performances of actresses playing patients in the film, it's a compelling watch. Um, I I did not have a problem sitting through all of this film. It it 
it's just a little there there are some too many scenes with Dr. Kick that I just wasn't wild about. Um but De Havilland holds it holds your attention, I think, um, throughout the I think it's an hour and forty seven ish minutes or something like that. I think that's the, the official runtime. And um I think she does an excellent job carrying this film. TJ, do you find this to be a compelling watch like Ken did? Um, I think I liked it less than Ken, but I am still positive on it. Um, what I just the only thing I would add to what he said was I liked watching the I don't want to say attempts because that, that sounds like failures, but the attempts to cinematically visualize her mental crisis like i mentioned earlier with um some of the juxtapositions and the uh sound overlays and the well a scene you mentioned earlier is the the waves crashing and what that was was around the midpoint she gets put in front of uh the staff is that what's right they're like the review board exactly it's a a review board to see if she's ready to re-enter society oh uh, can i bitch that's a parole board yes okay and this drove me nuts it, 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 this is just poor filmmaking. So the cigar guy putting the finger in her face, that was so uh, – that needed to be either more clearly from her perspective or that was so overwrought because I nobody weird. actually yeah. – right. ta- you can't see me again, but it's like no one talks You're waving like your finger this. in her face, yeah. And yeah, if yeah. someone did that to me, I'd bite that fucking finger off too. Like that was not a did. sign that she was irritated. That was so extra. No, the, the the scene you're talking about, I think, is to your point, and I, I agree. And I think Josh, you may have been trying to say the, about to say the exact same thing. The fact that the shots don't allow you to interpret it from her point of view, the shot actually changes, and we get her and that doctor in the same shot, and he seems to be actively waving her, her, his finger and his cigar right into her face, where it probably in, should have been. Um, should have been shot from what her point of view. From the contrasting, contrasting right. point of view. Right. Contrasting point of view is what we should have gotten. Yeah. We we should have. Yes, he could have been pointing at her. But the idea that his the cigar is like right in her face, like she's perceiving it to be, would have been probably more effective as opposed to no, he's actually just just being an inconsiderate asshole. Yeah. But then as he's doing that, the movie kind of like cuts a or it kind of like cross cuts with waves crashing and like it's kind of her like dangling off the edge and so it's implying that like him waving the cigar in her face in the stress of being in front of this review board is kind of putting her into a um crisis mental space and then i think it cuts to her doing a hydrotherapy where they're like put her in a bath and put towels over her um is that right so i I also thought that was effective tj yeah, just come back to it. I thought it was very effective. I mean, yeah, there's a she's she seems to be reaching for help, and the a, a ner- not to, uh, once again a nurse appears, and seems to force her over the cliff and into the the crashing waves, uh, the crashing surf beneath her at the but bottom of the cliff. But it is getting into more ab- it's getting into more abstract imagery to put her put you into her headspace and like using the form effectively. I think, and that's a highlight of the movie that. Otherwise, I think could have maybe used a little bit more of that, honestly. Yeah. Um, also, fair. I'm going to shout out just because I think we're, we're coming to an end of our discussion, but I want to just shout out Beulah Bondi as Mrs. Greer in Ward 1. Um, what an, a, a delightfully eccentric, uh, diamond-obsessed, uh, pretentious old lady. Um, there there are several performances again. And here's the thing. I, I enjoyed Beulah Bondi. In retrospect, I'm shouting out also because I'm not sure how appropriate it always is. They've got some characters in this film that play for a kind of, I don't want to say laughs, but certainly um, they're, they're comedic actresses, specifically Bondi and Ruth Donnelly, who's in Ward 33 with her. Um, Ruth, her, I think her character's name is Ruth as well, but she seems to suggest that she's only there because she's been there for more than a year. And she does seem to be, uh, she does seem to be, more lucid than some of many of the other women in Ward 33. But both of these, these character actresses are specifically comedic actresses for the most part. And I was a little put off, I'll be honest, by their presence in the film because each time they appeared at that point, uh, De Havilland's performance just doesn't mesh with having suddenly this at the time what would have been a well known 
comedic face appear in the film, kind of for a lighter moment. And I don't know how you guys felt about their performances. I'm not sure how familiar you are with either of those actresses. But for me, being familiar... Not enough to have distinguished that or really pointed that out. Yeah, for for me at the time, I'm not... This again, in 1948, the audiences would have been recognizing... They would have recognized those two actresses. I'm not sure I appreciate what appears to have been an attempt to create a, a bit of you know character or comic relief in some of the characters. That might have... I'm not sure that's exactly what Litvak intended, but certainly the studio behind it would have been authorizing uh, these actresses to be in the film with that in mind. And that kind of rubbed me a little the wrong way. It didn't really, like I said, it doesn't really mesh with de Havilland's performance of the rest of the movie. Um, that said, both actresses are incredibly, incredibly good character actresses. So um, yeah, just shout out to both of those uh, actresses and their performances for both good and bad reasons. So I want to talk about a little bit of research that I did. Uh, when I say research, I mean I read the, I read the Wikipedia page. That's about <laughs> it. Um, but uh, so the director Anatol Litvak, I guess uh, he was born in Kiev, Kiev, excuse me, to uh, Lithuanian Jewish parents, and he learned filmmaking in Leningrad, and then he worked as a director in Berlin, Paris, and London. And I thought that was interesting that he had a very European. Uh, birth upbringing and and uh career uh you know start of his career and uh this is all during the rise of fascism in europe in the 1930s and when he came to the united states that really informed the movies that he made here uh he uh came to the u.s and became a prominent director of films with anti-fascist sentiment and that includes co-directing the why we fight films produced by camp uh frank capra in the late 30s and he also before this his most notable work was in 1939 called Confessions of a Nazi Spy. And Ooh. I thought that was interesting that he is bringing like a... Also known as uh, the Steve Bannon tapes. <laughs> okay. Hot, hot political messaging from serious film people. Um, I thought it was interesting that like that's the perspective he's bringing to the films he's making in the United States. Like these uh, moral message movies and these social commentary movies. And um, that's kind of, I think gets to the heart of how this was received the way it was and how it was nominated for, for best pictures because this was a uh, social social message of the moment kind of thing in 1948. It's very didactic, uh, so it's supposed to be teaching the audience things. And the reason I think this movie is less effective for, for me in 2023 is that, like, I don't know, it's, this seems kind of obvious and, like, stuff that I've seen before. And, like, yeah, I get it. Mental institutions were horrible and we mistreated people. Um, and, uh, but, like, this is maybe, I guess, the first version, or you know, one of the earlier versions of of of, the, of teaching that message. Um, as you said earlier, Ken, that this led to legislation, like that the this movie did, uh, according to the publicity releases from 20th Century Fox, which you know, take that with grain of salt, they're gonna you know over glamorize their own product, but they claim that 26 states enacted legislation, and there's only 48 states at the time, so that's a pretty good percentage. Um, and then like. Uh, Leonard Maltin, who's a film critic who's still around, our guy Leonard Maltin, he uh, apparently really liked this movie and credited, its, credited it as being, quote, one of the first films to deal intelligently with mental breakdown and the painstakingly slow recovery process. And apparently they also, like, screened this movie for psychiatrists at the time. Psychiatrists in 1948 loved it because they're like, hey, this movie's acknowledging how hard our work is and how complicated it is. And it's not just, you know, it's not as dismissive of... of insane people it is more it, it humanizes them more and that's i guess a well i was gonna say i don't know that it showed the path to recovery very much no uh, so i was just about to I say think i think yeah i mean i agree but at least at yeah. least it, it showed a path to recovery which may have been uh maybe not on people's minds in mm-hmm. 1948 yeah. maybe yeah. people thought you have nervous breakdown then you just live in an institution the rest of your life and that's it uh but you know this movie did show somebody working through it and processing her trauma and getting better this this film does a lot to depict the lives of the patients it does not um, i'm a little surprised you you mentioning that um psychiatrists apparently really loved it i think they're seeing or reading far too much into this film this film doesn't do very much uh to depict i think the psychiatry well, nurses or didn't love hospitals it. psychiatrists liked it nurses did not again yeah, but the, I, the nurse treatment here is tough what i mean is i think i think the doctors i think the psychiatrists are are seeing too much into the dr kirk character character because I, as to tj's to tj's point 
Uh, we don't get a whole lot of the treatment in the film. I think this film is primarily uh, a film in which we get a better understanding of what the patients are experiencing. And that's, that is a, that is something that is very important. And I, the fact that this is the first film to do that with, I think, um, certain compassion and understanding for the patient. Again, Olivia de Havilland went all out and her performance is fantastic. And a lot of the other actresses in the film, um, equally, do an equally uh, fine job as, as the patients. It doesn't, Dr. Kick, I think, and, and the other doc, certainly the other doctors and the nurses, it doesn't do a whole lot to speak to what the institutional, um, process or system was like in America, at least none of the strengths. Um, there's just this one doctor who seems to be dedicated to trying to cure them, and the film doesn't really show us a lot of that process. I didn't like it very much. I I, uh, this I had muffin is bad. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Ken, you said you found this to be a compelling watch. I didn't find it that compelling. Uh, there were some parts I liked, but this hour 47 felt pretty long to me. Um, it was interesting, like, what the – what narrative question was being posed. You know, like, that's how movies work. It poses a narrative question and, like, gets you to continue watching so you can see the answer to that question. And whether it's plot or character based, that's how that's how stories work. And like the question I guess posed here was, you know, will she figure out what's wrong with her? Will they will they sort out this nervous breakdown? And again, the fact that like childhood trauma being treated as kind of a big reveal was really, really, you know, uh, that left me wanting. I think because again, the second I see someone in, men- in a mental institution, I'm like, ah. Maybe some unprocessed trauma is the source of this. Hey, (laughs) the doll was her father. How about that? How insightful of you to have (laughs) suspected that it was something in her past. I'll be honest. um, My wife, Brittany, last night watched this with me. And when we got done with it, her response was, well, that was exhausting. (laughs) I'm with Brittany. For sure. That was her response. Um, I, I didn't, like I said earlier, I didn't love the film. It's just, I, I did find it as I, I think I did find it more compelling than both of you, but, um, yeah, it's, it's not one that I would go out of my way to recommend to people. It's just, um, it's got a noteworthy performance from its lead actress. I think that's the strongest element. And I think she does a lot to carry it, at least for me. Um, but yeah, it doesn't, I'm glad I saw it. I, can't imagine it's one I watch again, though. Correct. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. I think everything we said about Johnny Belinda, I apply to this, where, like, it seems I can see how it would have been more effective in 1948 for audiences, but, like, it, nowadays it just seems so obvious and almost almost condescending in a way and mm. in, in, in how didactic it is. But there is a good lead female performance, just like in Johnny Belinda. Um, which – and. Well, which – referencing the audience uh, at the time and Johnny Belinda – um, we talked about how Johnny Belinda did a surprisingly uh, good job of getting audiences into the theaters. Um, this was the seventh highest grossing film of the year in 1948. Snake Pit was? The Snake Pit. Olivia should have won the Oscar. Right. She, that out over Jane Wyman. Oh, yeah. 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 I agree for sure. I would, yeah. I think, I think we all, De Havilland's performance is fantastic. She didn't win. It got six nominations, uh, Best Picture, Director, uh, actress adapted screenplay score and then as tj mentioned earlier it won sound recording um which eventually is what we is the sound category essentially what today um is a 3.8 million dollar budget it got back 4.1 million so it didn't make a huge profit but that 3.8 million dollar budget yeah that i how i was it's gonna say they're on the screen <laughs> Um, they did actually. Did they pay Doctor Kick two point eight million? <laughs> they did film this in an institution, um, so okay. there was some. There was some. That sounds like you can do it for cheap. Then at that point, I mean, <laughs> there was. They had to deal with the state of California, um, and the numbers. To be fair, large I, snake budget. I that was the number I saw. I'll be honest. This one, as we talked previously, it's harder to find some of these figures for films going back that far. Um, but the 4.1 million figure I saw on multiple sites when I was researching this, it was the seventh highest grossing film of the year. So it, it was, uh, pretty well watched by audiences. Now, granted, we're talking about a time period when people were going at least once a week. It was just something people did. 
Um, so they probably yeah. saw yeah, yeah, they were yeah. seeing more movies, um, but a lot of people did go see the Snake Pit. So uh, talking about the fact that none of the three of us were familiar with this movie before watching it, um, audiences at the time certainly showed up. I can't say I recommend it. I'm not gonna watch it again. I don't think. Uh, if you want something like this, watch A Woman Under the Influence. I think Gene Rollins. Great for that to this. Great film. Which, he just made a face. <laughs> I, it's another. It's a. That's another film that's carried. I think primarily by its lead performance. If we're being completely exactly. honest. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do we? Do we think? <laughs> I, I think I already know the answer, so it seems rhetorical. Does this film really hold up uh, in in the modern era? In the twenty first century, is a film like The Snake Pit? I think I've kind of been saying over and over again, no, it doesn't. But <laughs> it's, if you have to ask, let me just say definitively, no. <laughs> TJ, what do you think? Any any um, thought of how to add? I I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. What kind of a film that may not have offended been... by it, but a uh, an artifact. Yeah, I was going to say a film that, if not entirely lost to history, certainly kind of somewhat forgotten, and that's probably not the worst case scenario for it, to be honest, I think is what our great great lead performance, uh, but beyond that, there are better films that address this topic that come after it. So what's next week? Next week, we are diving into the badges, or no, wait, no stinking badges, right? So Treasure of the Sierra Madre from John Huston, starring Humphrey Bogart. Um, this, I think, we'll obviously address it next week, but uh, I think we've all seen this one. Um, we'll get into why. No, we have not all oh, seen this one. No. Oh, no. well, then we'll have to address that next week. Uh, I have many, many, many times. <laughs> we will... Uh, oh, good for you. <laughs> we'll be back... We'll be back with Dobbs and the gang next week for Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Join us, please. Goodbye. Thank you. Bye.